0: We're back with the Statues and Stories Hour after an incredible event where we saw the presentation that Adam uh, gave last night, and uh, Adam was uh, so kind to recognize WSQF Blink Radio as kind of his partner in crime here on on FM back in the days when everybody was virtuous and founding of this nation. And uh, Adam is going to discuss... Pretty much whatever he wants, since we don't want to listen to Ed because you know his nose is in his way. And uh, uh, Adam, what did you think about uh, Ed trying to take over your whole program last night with a with a closing argument about Blink Radio? Which somewhat I, I appreciated initially, but not after it went on for about fifty seconds. So
1: oh, I agree with you that uh, when you have a cold, then you lose your radio
0: voice. Oh man, look at him! Was that a there PC? Was that a PC oh, answer yeah, or yeah, what? Protecting yeah. the Ed man?
2: All right, yeah, it's a legal uh, uh, courtesy.
0: And then you also have with you uh, someone more talented than all of us, because I saw his prints yesterday, Mr. Roth. Um, uh, Mr. Roth, uh, you're uh, with Adam together, and you guys are both calling in, correct? Yes, we're we're
3: together in his uh, conference room.
0: Fantastic. And uh, last night there was about, uh, what would you say, 250, 300 people? Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was really incredible your collection and uh, the two others that also contributed to the uh, present uh, to the exhibit. It's uh, I-, I loved how you got involved in the uh, you went to the nuances of the actual binding of the printing, and uh, it really was in- incredible to see the actual uh, printing, the quality of the printing, all these years later for these for that. Uh, uh, the font and text, it looked like fresh off a typewriter, and man, it was 200-something well, years old. It was
2: on good quality paper, too.
0: Wow! I'm really impressed at the elements, and you all keep this stuff basically at regular room temperature, correct? Nothing fancy about the way you're keeping these books stored?
1: So the, the quick answer is the, the primary book, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but the primary book, which is the most valuable book, and I've been telling people that it tested the limits of NSU because that's where the exhibit is. So this is the alexander hamilton exhibit for everyone to catch up with us the alexander hamilton exhibit and it's also about isaiah thomas the publisher which is the main focus of tonight but just to give everyone an idea about where the exhibit is and the speech that happened last night We are at the Cortilla Gallery. The Cortilla Gallery is the second floor of NSU's library, and the big library. It's the biggest library, by the way, in the state of Florida in terms of the size of the building. It is the biggest library building in Florida.
0: Oh my God!
1: It it is a phenomenal. You guys, I'm curious what you thought about walking in that. that,
0: Oh, it was splendor! It was total splendor.
1: It's a fantastic facility, and it's open to the public. And I constantly use it because I do research there and I'm always researching for the website statutesandstories.com. So when that that space became available uh, to do this Hamilton exhibit, we took full advantage of it. So not only does it have my collection, which I text about and write about on statutesandstories.com, we also were able and very fortunate to get David to give his art which we're gonna talk about tonight. And uh, what you were also referring to is the fact that we have Alexander Hamilton's, and I've been calling it lately, Hamilton's Holy Grail. It is a book that Hamilton cited over a 20 year period. And for the musical fans out there, Hamilton began citing this book when he was a student at Columbia University, which back then was King's College. He cited it continually through his career. He cited it in the Federalist Papers, and Madison cited it in the Federalist Papers. He cited it in legal briefs that he sent to the New York Supreme Court in a very important case. He cited it in opinions he gave to Washington when he was Secretary of Treasury. And he cited it, I think, most interestingly and most compellingly in what are called the Camillus essays. And if you go to the exhibit, you're going to get to see, and this is crazy, you're going to get to see the Hamilton articles that he wrote, his columns, under a pseudonym. That pseudonym is Camillus. And these were Roman names because that's how they would commonly, the founding fathers were were thinking that they're trying to recreate the, the old Greek and Roman democracy, and the democracy didn't last very long in Rome, it lasted longer in Greece. But the point is that Hamilton would write over the course of 20 years using a pseudonym. And we have three newspapers with Hamilton essays under the name Camillus. And the connection here is that in those Camillus essays, he's citing the book by Grotius. And here we're probably confusing people. But the point is that uh, we have the book that Hamilton used throughout his career, including in the essays that he wrote in the newspapers. And here these were Federalist newspapers. So it is a phenomenal selection. And I have to do some uh, some before we tease up David. I have to do some shout outs. So I have to do some thanks, and, and you mentioned this, Manny and Ed, that uh, you know, these are not all my books. The, the most valuable ones came from private collections. So the most valuable one came through the auspices of the AHA Society, and, and loyal listeners know the AHA Society is the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society. So through those connections, we were able to bring in Hamilton's personal book with his signature, his marginalia, and uh, I'm going to ask Ed later what is a medical because it has all kinds of unique historical information in it. We also were able, through a good friend of ours, and he's the president, and you met him last night, he's the president of the Florida Antiquarian Book Dealers Association, William Croissant. And William has, in his extensive collection of antiquarian objects, he has land grants from Madison. How often do you get to see a Madison signature on the same wall with a let's see, the, 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 from Pennsylvania. So Benjamin Franklin, a Benjamin Franklin signature in the same room with an Alexander Hamilton signature. And these are the real McCoy. And there's also a Washington signature on the acts of the first Congress. So it is a crazy exhibit in terms of people who appreciate, if, and people do appreciate because of Hamilton. They want to see and learn more about American history, but what they don't know about, because it's not in the musical, and one day we have to write a musical about what David's going to be talking about. But uh, you know, we, we need it to do respect. We needed to uh, faithfully uh, give, give the books. When you look at a book, you know, okay, it's an old book, and you can't tell how old it is. And I, I will point out that some of the pages, they get what's called browning. And go to statutesandstories.com, and there are places where I talk about these old books, and you know, it's called foxing, and there are different uh, things in how to preserve a book. We can talk about that another night.
0: And the difference between the, King's, uh, England, the British publishing and the colonial publishing, the way they bound the books differently.
1: That's an excellent point with the acts of parliament the tea act and the stamp act so these were printed by the king's publishers so when i say the king's publishers not because they call themselves the king's publishers because they publish for the king so the, the first statues that we have on display have what's referred to as marbling on the inside cover. These are very intricate, leather-gilded, uh, you know, very fancy books, and they were written and, and prepared to be preserved. These cost a lot of money when they were published, and uh, we, we can talk about, uh, you know, unfortunately a lot of the libraries, because they're difficult to take care of, have been getting rid of them, and that's where I come in because I'll snatch them up when they go on auction or they're available online, uh, and that, there aren't that many people who collect them. But the point is that, uh, to to Manny's point, these old books uh, when they're from England, they're very fancy. But when the American publishers, and we're going to talk this as a way to lead into Isaiah Thomas, the American publishers, especially when Congress is publishing. So the law, just because you're passed a law, doesn't mean it means anything unless it's distributed around the country and unless people have access to it and the judges have it so they can follow it. So the, some of the books that are on display start with the British Acts of Parliament, which are very regal and they're very fancy, as we said, very intricate. But when you get to the American law books, the American publishers didn't have the facilities to do something fancy, first of all, but they're a lot smaller because they're trying to conserve paper, and they're working on a budget because Congress is now paying for the publishing of laws. So that that leads into Isaiah Thomas, and Isaiah Thomas, who is from Boston, and I have sitting next to me on my right, David Wells Rock, who is an artist, but he is also a, really an amateur historian. I call him a professional historian in the area where he spent him up. He spent two years effectively researching when he was commissioned by, and here's another trivia question for you guys, what is the oldest restaurant in the country?
0: Uh, the, uh, uh, the Clam House. Oyster, right. House. I, oyster I, House.
1: The Clam House. So, right, I, get the cla-
0: I said oyster and you said clam, right?
3: Okay.
1: okay, so the Oyster House, they refer to it, they have a couple different names, but Ye Old Union Oyster House. Ye, ye Old Union Oyster House. So it's, it's the oldest restaurant in the country, and then, of course, New York, they, they claim that the Fontaine Tavern, which is at the bottom of Manhattan, is, is also pretty old. But the restaurant that David's going to talk about is where the Sons of Liberty met, where the Sons of Liberty with Isaiah Thomas had the printing press upstairs. So enough about me. So David, who is the expert, who did two years' worth of artwork, uh, let's, uh, let's hear a little bit about the kind of research you did to meticulously recreate. The scenes, the street scenes, and that's part of his expertise to to recreate the the emotion when you have British soldiers coming to arrest Isaiah Thomas. So, what's involved when you when you research that kind of a project,
3: David? Well, the um, that's a general question. Okay, so let me get more specific. Um, the paintings deal first with Isaiah Thomas. He is the, uh, the Revolutionary War printer who who was from boston originally and he he uh set up a shop on union street in boston so union street is today an old section of boston they have marshall land and union street and union street is uh and in, in marshland are considered one of the oldest areas in, in in boston now the restaurant is on the freedom trail as as uh as the freedom trail that goes from from that area up to, up to the north end where you've got Paul statue and the uh, Old North Church where he, he set up the lights, one if I land, to if I see. But anyway, Isaiah Thomas uh, had his print shop there, so so the commission was, how do we how do we display, I mean, how, how, what story should I tell with Isaiah Thomas? So I, I researched him and found out that he was basically, I want to see, how... how way to put this, he, he, uh, he, I'm, I'm getting off, Hold on me, a second. Let me give you a little bit of, uh, more background. So one of the reasons. Uh, it's, it's such a general question. I'm just trying to focus in. It's hard to do that in a, in a second here. Go ahead.
1: So just more background about Isaiah Thomas. So Isaiah Thomas is, uh, is a fellow who is basically an orphan, starts off as an orphan. And Isaiah Thomas, the, the name of the organization back then, they didn't have, and this gets to the point of how big government is or small government is, but back in the day, it was referred to as the town fathers or the overseers of the poor of the town of Boston uh, because they had this orphan kid, and he was indentured to a printer who didn't have any kids.
3: Okay, Did you want me to talk about his background? I mean, I could talk about his, you know, the, how the style is or, or what kind of, uh, how, how, uh, how I got up with the uh, the details. Um, let me see that for a second. So, so the, the first painting is about there, there, are, there are five different paintings in this room. Uh, they're, they're, they're dealing with five episodes in his life, and in, in his career. The first painting is um, is called The Sedition Foundry. It is depicting what I imagine the room to be where his print studio was. And I, and I created this environment by researching the, uh, the street and the various places, the various houses on the street, and, 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 and his masthead, uh, which which said that it was at the corner of Union Street and Marshall Lane. So, David, brother, what is uh, a masthead? Okay, masthead is is at the top of the page of the newspaper. You've got the title of the of the newspaper, which is in in this case is called the Massachusetts Spy, and and he started this uh, this newspaper in in 1770 with with a, with a uh, partner of his called Zachariah Fowle. Now, Fowle and he were were printing together on this paper, but then they had a falling out, and, and Isaac Thomas bought out the paper, and uh, and then he uh, he continues on his own. It started out as, as basically a general newspaper, but but as things heated up in Boston, it became more and more a uh, a response to the British uh, the British oppression against the, uh, the the colonists. But anyway, so so to create the environment of the pay of the uh, of the painting. I started to discover that Isaiah Thomas had his press in, in, uh, in the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester. Now, why was it there? The press originally was on Union Street, but then du- during one episode, the British were trying to uh, either torn feather him or arrest him, or, or, uh, or, or they were going to even possibly kill him. So he, he, John Hancock, uh, instructed that he should escape from Boston and uh, and then then bring his press outside of Boston because he was he was gone, he was in danger. So so the press was in the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester. Well, just
1: so yeah. readers and listeners follow, when we say press, we're talking about the printing press.
3: Yeah, printing press. Yes, this this is a, a six foot tall piece of uh, mahogany and oak, strung together to with, with a big flat bed of of, uh, of mahogany that you. You run through, uh, you, you crank it through the, uh, the pressure area on it, and then press out newspapers. You, you flip each page, and in an average time that they could, you know, the, the number of pages they could print in an hour would be about 250 pages. But anyway, so I found the press in the American Antiquarian Society and began to sketch it, photograph it, paint it, and was able to reconstruct what the room would look like. Now, I did that by going out to... Uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. And, uh, and there they had James, I mean, uh, Williamsburg, oh, Williamsburg. And um, I believe that's, that's what it was called. But the, um, the, there was a, a journeyman printer working on a press, exactly the same type of press that Isaiah Thomas used. And, uh, and in the same environment, they set up the, the shop exactly the way he would have done it. So I was able to sketch it and photograph it and, and get some information that way. So I came back to Boston and started to put the painting together. Now, that I, I, I then put uh, various people into the painting. He in his in his uh, print shop he invited numerous times John Hancock, Paul Revere, James Otis, and, uh, and Joseph Joseph Warren, which were all buddies of his, and also fellow revolution revolutionary. They were uh, part of this group, which the British then named the Sedition Foundry, because that was his print shop with such, such a seditious uh, environment. So, uh, so putting the painting together, you, you could see Paul Revere basically uh, sitting next to John Hancock and, and a few other people in the room. So, David, uh, I wanted to give more yeah. flavor
1: to some of what you were describing. I want to use some of the primary sources because as, uh, as listeners know on Stations you don't hear Adam Levinson's opinion, I back it up by giving you quotes and by giving you links to the sources of the day so you can see where the information is coming from so people can use the sources which I sort of weave together on Stations and Stories. So to give some more specifics, the governor of Massachusetts in the 1770s, the royal governor whose name was Thomas Hutchinson And because Thomas Hutchinson didn't like the fact that Isaiah Thomas in the printing press that you just heard about was printing anti-British, you know, opinions and anti-tax opinions because the British were were doing things that the colonists disagreed with, taxation without representation, for, for example. So one day, this is in 1771, the governor, Thomas Hutchinson, orders that Isaiah Thomas be prosecuted for malicious libel. This is in 1771. This is before the, the Tea Party in 1773. So Thomas, nevertheless, continues his work undeterred because the grand jury refuses to indict him, even though the governor wants him to be indicted. And it is claimed that John Adams, and when we say John Adams, we're talking about the John Adams, who represented the British soldiers after the, uh, there were different ways of describing it, but uh, there was a, an engagement, uh, and this was one of the other precipitating causes of the Revolutionary War. The
2: Boston Massacre.
1: Boston Massacre, beautiful. So John Adams represented at the Boston after the Boston Massacre the British soldiers because he understood you have to follow the law, just as uh, Alexander Hamilton, by the way, represented <laughs> loyalists because he understood you have to protect the rights of minorities and you follow the law. If someone was innocent, you make sure that they they get acquitted. So John. Thomas in 1771 when Hutchinson starts breathing down his neck and uh, let's get some more background about why is Paul Revere, David, involved with this
3: press. He, How was, does... he was an engraver and uh, Isaiah Thomas had him engrave the uh, the head which was a snake confronting a dragon which symbolized the snake was the the, uh, taken after uh, Benjamin Franklin's snake. And, they're, they're okay,
1: or well, die. I want to make sure, that because the individuals who are conducting this interview, uh, they are very well aware of that famous segmented snake. Right.
0: Don't, oh, don't, yeah, don't, don't tread, tread on, on, me. on me. No, no, no. Live,
1: join or die.
2: Join
0: or die. Okay. So it started with Franklin earlier, but then in
2: it the... Was se- and also, we'll, we'll do some yeah. research on yeah. that. But
0: then... That's when, the, well, you're talking about the uh, the snake on the glass didn't flag, right?
1: No, but so
2: this is before. Right. So it
1: started with Franklin years earlier, but now when things are heating up in Boston... It's
3: 1757.
1: Right. So Franklin prepares the original version of that snake, the segmented snake we're pretty sure in the seventeen fifties, but now when things are heating up in Boston, Isaiah Thomas wants to put on the masthead of his newspaper, in other words, the very top of the newspaper, a new anti British image. So he refers back to his engraver and who's the engraver again?
3: Paul Revere. Now Paul Revere also engraved the famous uh depiction of the Boston Massacre. Now what people don't really know is that Paul Revere basically lifted that image directly from John Singleton Copley's half brother, and uh, and he had the original design of that of that etching, that that scene. But Paul Revere took it and then made it famous. So um, and that's what they did in those days. It wasn't much to do with
1: uh, copyright. And I'm going to joke with you that I'm trying to get licensing or permission to use some of David's work he understands the importance of copyright law. So if you go to statutesandstories.com, all over statutesandstories.com, whenever I give a picture of some of David's work, we have the copyright registration. I had to get permission in order to do it. And uh, we want to make sure that we give
3: your website data. What is your website? DavidWellsRoth.com. okay. So so that's basically a little little bit of background for the first painting, which is called The Sedition Foundry. The next painting that was in the series is called Challenging freedom of speech. Now, this is when Isaiah Thomas is being confronted by the British soldiers for writing a very scathing article. He actually didn't write it. He, he, he printed a scathing article about Governor Hutchinson, and uh, it was written by Joseph Greenleaf under the under the surname of uh, Mew Mius, Scavola, which is a Greek name. And uh, so the British got wind of that in 1771, November 14th, when the article was written, they came to his, his print shop, and they were about to arrest him. Now, Thomas said, listen, you can't take me out of here because I'm busy. <laughs> Basically, they left him there. But then he was almost, rep- he was represented by, by um, you said he was represented by, by John Adams. John Adams was ready and
1: geared up, and then give some more details, and, and we, we'll, we'll go back and forth with some of the, the flavor here. <clears throat> but let's fast forward until 1774. And things are really going to heat up during the Revolutionary War after the uh, this is pre-war. So we're not firing at each other yet, but it's getting pretty close. And uh, listeners will remember Lexington and Concord. So I'm, I'm painting the picture, Heading it. Do you want to go there yet? Or do you have not, not yet.
3: Yeah, oh, yeah, no, no, okay, yeah. yeah. so, so then on November 28th, Thomas came out with another uh, issue, as if that wasn't hot enough. He, he reprimanded the British and uh, for 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 basically trying to shut him down for Trying to express his right of speech, so uh, so that that basically on, on November 28, 1771 was really the first time that somebody challenged freedom of speech, and um, and that was a very important moment. So the next painting that I that I did in the series was of Thomas uh, as he was being chased out of Boston, putting his press onto onto a ferryboat. And uh, shoving um, it out of Boston towards towards Charlestown, and then it was going to be taken by carriage to uh, to Worcester. So the painting that I did is a very dramatic scene. Uh, so before you do that uh, scene, hmm? tell us, paint for us, the, before you paint that picture. How to paint it.
1: <laughs> before, before how you painted it, what led to the need to evacuate from Boston? So in other words, who knocks on his door, oh. and what time is it when they so come? Joseph Warren. Yes.
3: Uh, came to his door and said, "Listen."
1: And, wait, so who is Joseph Warren? Uh,
3: he was he, he was a doctor, a friend of, of Isaiah Thomas, and a very very spicy revolutionary as well. Right. Dr. Joseph Warren was one
1: of, the, one of the firebrand leaders of the Sons of Liberty, and, and the individual we're about to talk about, Dr. Joseph Warren, is the hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill, and Joseph Warren gets killed so at I was going to say that after.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, so it you, you guys <laughs> are worse than me and Ed. What is that? You guys are worse than me and Ed. We, uh, you guys are batting like a husband and wife in there. I thought only me and Ed can do that here. <laughs>
3: So, no, say, he so, okay. yeah. so anyway, so he, he gets a knock on his door by, by Warren, and, uh, and he's got a message from Hancock saying, you've got to get out of here. So Thomas packs up his bags and packs up his equipment, uh, dismantles his press and everything, and then brings it out to the uh, to ferry boat. So my painting depicts that on the, on, the, uh, on the dock when they're about to leave Boston towards Charlestown. I, I did have to say right now that I did take some artistic license for the painting, and I put the moon in a position where it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be north northwest, but anyway, who's, who's counting, right? Nobody, no, nobody will hear that anyway. But uh, okay, so so the next the next scene, uh, the way I, I constructed this scene is I used maps created by the British, and uh, the British army created in, in 1775 a, a very detailed map of their armaments stationed around Boston and I was able to reconstruct the scene uh, how it might have looked you know looking at Charlestown so okay so that's the, that thing is done so let's let's go the next painting was char I mean uh, a few days later on April 19th oh, by the way this this one was April 16th then April 19th what happened on April
0: 19th do you guys know nope
2: Concord and Lexington.
0: That's right. So, Ed always knows. Excuse right? me. Ed always knows. Excuse me.
3: Okay. Good. Because yeah. on April 19th, the dawn of April 19th, Joseph Warren and Isaiah Thomas both take another boat from Boston to Charlestown and then to Lexington. They, they, they go to Lexington. And uh, so I'm depicting that scene of, of them rolling across the, the uh, Charles River. And so, in that painting, the way I constructed that painting was again with the map, and then trying to imagine the scene, looking out towards the ocean, um, looking to, with Boston on the right and Charlestown on the left. But you see in the distance, British warships poised, ready to attack Charlestown. And uh, and then on the right side, you could look across what was the, what was called Nose Pond. And you see Samuel Hall in the in the far distance. And then you'll see a ship being built in the in the um, in the foreground, which is which is probably from Greece, a uh, shipyard. And then a little uh, windmill up on a hill uh, in the distance, which was Cop's Cop's Hill, which was which had a windmill. So I tried to imagine the whole thing based on those those elements.
1: So just to give more flavor, what David did, he spent two years meticulously researching the. distances and if you go to the exhibit because David's going to be speaking and this is next Sunday at two o'clock this is the second lecture in our Hamilton series and let's make sure before the end of the evening we connect the dots between Hamilton and Isaiah Thomas but when you look at these pictures you're going to get to see how the thorough meticulous research about exactly what you would have seen had you been on that boat with Isaiah Thomas and Dr. Joseph Warren going from Worcester to Lexington and Concord etc crossing Charleston um, Charles River. And Charles River. It is phenomenal the level of detail in in these paintings.
3: So, the, so the next painting after the uh, they, they go off to uh, to Lexington and Concord is a scene called Charlestown Burning. Charlestown Burning is a view of of his studio. I mean, his 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 office building. And then on the right side is a little brick uh, brick building, which was owned by a. Um, a man named Hooksville Cape, and it was Little Dry Goods Shop, which is right next door. That is now the Union, Union Oyster House restaurant. And in the distance, you could see the flames of Charlestown. And in the foreground, you see British soldiers going down Union Street. They're just coming from Boston Commons, which is behind and to the left. And uh, and then, then the scene is very, very dramatic, as you can see people running and the city burning. Now, what you see also are, uh, in, in the, with the British soldiers, are, are the uh, that various houses now? What I did to research this street is I laid out a eight foot long cardboard model of, of the street, basically, to get the perspective of the houses correct. And also, I researched all the addresses to see who was living there at the time to find out if it was a butcher or some sort of a, a sales you know meat salesman or something or, or you know to try to get an idea of what the little signs that I was painting to the painting would be. You know, that there were hanging on the on the sides of the houses. So anyway, so that painting that painting was 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 made possible because I found a drawing by a guy named Benjamin Thompson who lived in the in the in the upper floor of the uh, of the little dry goods store which is now the Neusha House. And he did a sketch of that building at 1770, the same time Isaiah Thomas was there. So the remarkable thing is that set up the perspective for the road. That set up the, the look of the street. That set up the, the uh, placement of the houses. And everything was working perfectly. And then I found out that Benjamin Thompson later became a spy. And he became uh, a British spy. And, in fact, had an affair with Isaiah Thomas's wife which is kind of remarkable. So I'm, I'm wondering and speculating that maybe he was using her as a mole to get some information from the inner sanctum of the, uh, of the seditious sons of liberty. Now, that painting is important because that is Charlestown burning. That is the Battle of Bunker Hill. Now, what was happening there is Joseph Warren was fighting at that time in Bunker Hill, and he was a casualty there. So he was, he was shot dead by the British and he became a hero, as uh, Adam as
1: mentioned. Also, just a little bit more detail. The so, British <clears throat> went through the wounded and killed, and I'll go back and give more detail. Gabbed
3: them numerous, times. what was it, 24 times or something? So
1: the, some of these bodies, including Dr. Joseph Warren, maybe, weren't they, just we, dead, they were really we, dead.
3: Decapitated him, put his, separated his head from his body. Sorry, guys, if you're eating supper now, but um, but it was it was a brutal scene. The British were kind of, you know, <laughs> oh, never <mind laughs> at that time. So, uh, Before you yeah, move right. to the next
1: painting, yep. just to get more flavor for okay. Dr. Okay. Joseph yep. Warren. Mm-hmm. So, and also about freedom of speech, because this radio station and newspapers around the country, they perform a very important function, because the First Amendment is the First Amendment for a reason. So if we could go back a little bit to sure. talk about... When Isaiah Thomas, for years, is printing these anti-British, anti-taxation, you know, protecting rights, protecting and criticizing quartering of troops and all the reasons why the Sons of Liberty is not happy with the British, the British would continually try to intimidate Isaiah Thomas, including doing the following. The loyalists would would burn him an effigy. Burning an effigy means... It would make a, a scarecrow-looking figure, and burn it and say that this we put a sign on the figure before they burn it, or, or put, a, you know, put a, a rope around the neck, a noose around the neck, to try to intimidate them. Also, the red coats would march past his office, past his printing shop, threatening him that he's going to be tarred and feathered. And we talked about yesterday that when it's, they're threatening to tar and feather you, that's not a fun process. In fact, it can be deadly, because it's hot tar, which will burn you. People who you suffocate this, your body. And suffocate your body. So when someone threatens to tar and feather you, and they are redcoats who are threatening to do it, that's a serious problem. He does not pack up his printing press. Instead, he defies, he defies them. He changes his masthead to put the Paul Revere copy, or innovation, if you will, of the original Benjamin Franklin segmented snake. And he uses the snake, and, and you can go into some of the details of these of beautiful intricate mastheads. But the, the other example I like to give, and people can go to Stash, and read this, and they can go to their website, which is davidwellsrock.com,
3: and uh, and the, the the Union Archdiocese paintings are not on the front page. You'll have to go to the arch- archive area, and then you'll find it there. By the way, place. how much does someone wants
1: to buy, if a teacher or an institution wants to buy, depending on the size, how much do they go for these days, David? My paintings? Uh, uh, that's, that's a...
3: very <laughs> Quite, we have to talk. The, prints. The, prints. Oh, the prints. The Oh, the The are thirty
0: dollars piece. So And then, and then the paintings are thirty thousand.
3: Oh, the the prints, prints. The paintings, the paintings themselves are priceless. No. <laughs> I'm kidding.
0: Go oh, ahead and set it. You'd be surprised who's listening. Our market, by the way, are for the audience to know, Blink Radio, ninety four point five cubiscane, is basically the highest income south of here, east of US-1, all the way down to Palmetto Bay. So the cities of the higher income portion of Coconut Grove in the city of Miami, all of South Miami, all of Pinecrest, and the northern part of Palmetto Bay. So there's plenty of people who can afford to pay $30,000 for your painting. So if it's 30000 hey, Roth, you're live. Say so. <laughs> now, nah, if it's 300000 say okay. so.
3: The paintings are not $30,000. No, no. The paintings Paintings we were commissioned uh, twenty years ago, and these these are owned by the workshops. We could discuss prices. I don't discuss my present prices, you know.
0: Yeah, because you're an artist. I un- I fully understand. Uh, I mean, uh, Ed discusses his prices, and he's not even a painter.
3: <laughs> now, the prints are something else. The prints. I'm not exact. I don't remember exactly the price of my prints. They've been up there for a while. They could they could Google my website and uh, and will send me send me a link and or. or you know, contact them and I'll let them know. In other words,
1: the prints are posters, all of the originals which are yes. in Boston. So if you want the poster copies, they're very reasonable to get the copies.
3: Extremely reasonable, not $30,000. So yes.
1: the, the, the last point I wanted to make about this day of July 7th, 1774, the British land, four additional regiments of British troops and Royal Artillery land in Boston because things are about to heat up and the British have decided that they're tired of Boston misbehaving. So they're going to try to suppress Boston. They're going to take military action. So this is July seventh, seventeen seventy four. What does, and you already know because we talked about it, when these four additional regiments of British troops arrive with artillery on July 7th, 1774, what does Thomas do? They've already been threatening him, they've already been tarring and feathering, the, you know, hanging him in effigy, burning him in effigy, walking past his shop and threatening him, what does he do? That's when he changes his masthead to double down. This is not a guy who gets intimidated because he knows freedom of the press is important.
3: That's right. Well, I, I, I've gone through all my paintings, so if you want to take over, uh, Adam. I also want to talk. We could just discuss it.
1: Yes. Right. I also want to talk with you about other things that David does, including not just Revolutionary War art, but he has a book that's coming out, and he's an illustrator. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the book, David?
3: Sure. It's called Girl by the River, and it's I did the illustrations for it, and it's by an author named Nora Babington, and uh, and it's it's a very interesting story of um, of five different stories woven together that sort of are related by a river. They take place over a couple of hundred years, and uh, from, for example, from like India to England, or, uh, you know, it's it's just, just, they don't seem to relate, but they, uh, hold on a second. Yeah, wait, let me find my my notes on- So
1: while David is looking for some of his notes, I'm gonna also describe to you that, in addition to book illustration, he also does judicial portraits, and we've got some interesting stories to tell you about right, so, his.
3: I'll go to the book afterwards. Is
1: that okay? So, right. I, I was with David today at lunch, and we were preparing for an interview on another radio station, and we were talking about his judicial portraits. And how you- dare you?
0: I, I'm sorry? See, how dare you guys? This is, you know, this is like a closed society radio station. You know that. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead.
1: So, we were preparing for an interview, and also preparing for your interview.
0: Okay, here, all right. You was, plugged us. Good, this good was enough. This a harder interview, I will tell you. So, d- during
1: the discussions, we're figuring out uh, what we want to talk about for the judicial p- portraits. And David picks up the phone. The next thing I know, he's asking, is judge so-and-so there? And, you know, I- I'm a lawyer during the day. I'm a history blogger with statutes and stories at night and on the weekends. And next thing I know, the judge takes the call because David does portraits of judges around the country. And uh, apparently, I learned something, lawyers don't call judges because there are reasons why there are ethical obligations. Lawyers can't talk to a judge unless the other attorney in the case is present because it creates all kinds of issues. So lawyers don't talk to judges. People think that lawyers and judges are close, but the answer is lawyers and judges don't talk because it presents issues if they have cases. But he's able to get through to a judge, and why is that? Because if, if you're the, maybe I'll ask you in the form of a question,
3: why is it that a judge would take your call? Well, because they know if they don't, their portrait might suffer. No, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, on the mole or yeah. the pimple or the running nose, like in the case Here of Ed, warts and all, warts know, and no, all. Oh,
3: all really nice job anyway. No, but uh, we're friends. You know, we, we've uh, I, I've made a lot of friends in the court, and they're really interesting people, very nice people. And
1: um, and David is a magician when he does portraits right how long what kind of diets do you make people
3: go on oh yeah yeah if somebody says they're a little of a lick, can you can you send me down the painting i say well you know
0: i'll take a 20 pounds well, off
3: yeah email for about four months and come back and uh and i'll and i'll paint you no i don't <laughs> but uh yeah I, i've got some very good friends uh who might painted portraits of their family for one, one who's probably listening right now don and his wife hi guys anyway uh and their kids um
0: so, so in the, other words, uh, these paintings are the ones you see, like in the hall, in the halls of the courts and right. uh, Hall of Fame, and L- all that.
2: Law school professors are all. So if you all, go to um,
3: the federal courthouse in Puerto Rico, you'll see in their atrium, the main atrium. which is a huge room, a couple hundred feet wide and long, and all my portraits are up in that room, all 34 portraits, and. Um, so I'm getting a 35th one in, in a few months.
0: And now these are our judges that served in the, uh, the U.S. Yeah. District Court in Puerto yeah. Rico. Federal court. That's federal correct. judges. Yeah. since from
3: 1898 when, when it became a territory through the present day.
0: Oh, fantastic.
3: Yeah. So so the way we, uh, when I first got the job, I had just finished a job, a, a portrait in Boston of Judge Richard Stearns. And uh, Puerto Rico is in the first district, as is Boston. So... Uh, so a few weeks later, I got a call from from Puerto Rico saying, can you come down? I thought I thought at first the person calling me was was joking me. I thought it was a friend of mine. I was about to start using swear words on the on the phone. But then I realized that they were ser- serious and uh, they asked if I could come to Puerto Rico and paint 33 portraits. And I thought, oh, my God, how long can you do it? I said, uh, oh, five years, maybe. He said, how about how about three? I said, well, uh, how about four? He said, no, how about three? He <laughs> said, OK. I'll do it for three years. In three years, no problem. And I came in about three months uh, early, so um, the paintings are all up. And you could you could take a look at my website, davidwellsroth.com, and, and see all those paintings and you know under Judge por- Judicial Portraits. So uh,
1: go ahead. So David's going to tell us about his book in a minute, but I also want to make sure we save time. Connect the dots because if this is a Hamilton exhibit, which has, let me talk a little bit about some of the artifacts we have. And I welcome Manny and Ed, you don't need to tell us because of your voice tonight, but we'll want to talk about some of the other artifacts there. But we purposely chose David's artwork because it does justice to these historic artifacts that we have. So we'll and talk. It together. And, and it, yeah, fits
3: together. it fits together. And mix a it fits yeah, together. Yeah, it fits together. And there's
1: a connection between Alexander Hamilton, which I want to tease out a little bit, and Isaiah Thomas. And uh, part of that connection, and let me ask you before we go into the book. So uh, Hamilton, we, we've talked about over the, the months on this radio station, is commonly referred to as America's foremost pamphleteer, meaning that when there's an, an exciting or important or troubling event in American history, Alexander Hamilton is picking up his quill pen, his quill pen and he's writing, and he's writing forcefully, and he's holding nothing back because uh, he, he is a man who's on a mission at Hamilton. Uh, so he gets to work is one of the songs in the musical. So in order for Hamilton to publish, in order for him to have his his writings uh, make it out to the public, he needs the printing presses. And just as it's dangerous for, let, let's talk about it, for Isaiah Thomas to living,
3: print. Let's, let's wrap up with that, because that's related that makes to the book. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just finish with the book. So anyway, so the book, again, is called Girl by the River. And I had mentioned the author Nora Babington. She's she's a phenomenal writer. She had a previous career as a ballet dancer and producer and director of uh, of shows and ballets, and and an actress as well. So so it it spans over centuries, from India to England, from France to New York, filled with interior and exterior drama. And and I was especially, especially, I read a passage of the book uh, when I first started talking about it, with, about it with her, and I was really moved by the the mysticism and the drama of it and, and was gripped by it. And uh, so I suggested, why don't we just um, put it together and, and do some illustrations for the book? And she loved the idea. And then we started doing that. It took about a year to develop it. And uh, the book is coming out in a couple of months. So look for it, Girl by the River. and um, I'll probably... Amazon
0: and your website or just, uh, just your website?
3: We'll, we'll, as soon as it comes out, it will be on my website and my Facebook page as well. I'm David Wells-Roth on Facebook. David Wells-Roth and uh yeah so look for it there i'll be po- i'll be posting it in in a couple of months when everything's all setting up and ready to go and so it's coming out on amazon and paperback as well
1: david i don't speak norwegian and you can talk with david uh-huh. later about uh, the languages that he talks and how he learned these oh, languages French.
3: Oh, no, I can't
1: talk. but, but you, you are dealing with an author in europe so what, what country and uh, how do we pronounce her name
3: nora babington it's an english name <laughs> it's actually an english royalty name so uh, let's, we don't speak. We don't speak uh, anything but English t- together. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's, 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 she speaks perfect English. <laughs> so,
0: well, you spent a considerable amount of time in Europe in your early days.
3: Yeah, I speak French. Yeah, I, I, I moved there because I um, I moved to New York after, right after college, and uh, and I basically starved for a couple of years, and I was able to uh, well survive barely, and then I met a French family who saw one of my paintings and decided to uh, to
0: Commission you for a lot of work
3: Yeah, they, well, they, 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 no, they didn't commission me. They, they exchanged four months in the south of France at their house for a painting.
0: Well, that it, sounds like a French commission video. Video.
3: <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then a brother of the family, uh, decided to do the same thing for two years for a, a painting So I did that, and then uh, it just went up to 15 years and, um and I painted all over France, over Italy, and uh, went to England, and, um, and just put together a huge body of work. And I paid my rent with paintings a couple of times of the year. And, and I'm
1: reminding everybody that not all the paintings are on your website, but davidwellsroth.com. You can see these peoplescapes, these streetscapes, yep. the, the work, and ha- what kind of an artist do you describe yourself as, David?
3: Figurative. A Figurative artist, uh, a painting from nature, a painting from, from life, a painting from what I see. And uh, and interpreting what I see,
0: and, and it's uh, always oil on canvas, right?
3: Yeah, oil is on canvas. But I do watercolors as well. I do sketching on with charcoal and pen and ink and, and etching as well. And, uh, and is, does
0: anybody do craypaws anymore?
3: Uh, yeah, I used to do craypaws, actually, as a of
0: fact. How about that? I learned that from art school in, in elementary school. Uh, re- oh
3: yeah, oh yeah. It, it, it's it's basically oil pastels. That's what craypaws are. Oil pastels. And uh, yeah, same thing. So yeah, definitely, I, I, I use that a lot. In fact, I, I combine it with watercolor to get a resistance kind of effect on it. So it's, it's interesting. But uh, yeah, go
1: on. So I wanted to bring everybody back to Isaiah Thomas. Okay. And that's what these portraits, when you go to the exhibit, which is at Nova Southeastern University, it's in the Cortilla Gallery, which is an art gallery. So we, we have these historic books, which we can talk about, but we needed to give the art. That's why we found David. and. Uh, let's connect back to Isaiah Thomas, and Isaiah Thomas's connection to Alexander Hamilton. So Isaiah Thomas, after the war, he becomes, and remember, Benjamin Franklin was the foremost printer for many years, but Isaiah Thomas, after the Revolutionary War, and we didn't even mention how he went to Lexington and Concord, but what did he do, by the way, at Lexington and Concord?
3: He fought, and he was the very first ever uh, war correspondent, because he reported on the Battle of Lexington, Eyewitness and also witnesses that were there, and uh, was able to to basically tell the story. Now they probably uh, built it up a bit. You know, he, he said there were women having babies that were being slaughtered. I mean, I don't know if that happened in the same day, but, you know, they, they embellished
1: it a bit. And this is the reason why Dr. Joseph Warren and John Hancock, and we didn't mention that when that knock happened on that door late at night, when Dr. Joseph Warren says to Isaiah Thomas, and we've got a quote here, uh, Jonathan, it was a message that was being delivered from John Hancock, and the message was to remove from Boston forthwith. Because the Sons of Liberties, with their their spies, figured out that the the British were coming to get Isaiah Thomas. They were going to arrest him, and they they weren't playing around anymore. So that's how he gets out of town, and that's why John Hancock and Dr. Joseph Warren and Paul Revere realized we have to get that printing press. We don't just need Isaiah Thomas, we need his printing press. And that's the same printing press that you did those drawings for, which today is located, tell us again. The
3: American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, because Isaiah Thomas, after the war, I mean, sorry. In, on that day, when he when he moved his press, began printing in in Worcester. The very first newspaper in Worcester came out on May 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 third, in 1775, and uh, and that that was the beginning of the whole in, the whole empire for Isaiah Thomas. He, he later became an extremely productive uh, publisher. He, he produced more than 900 books and music scores and a whole bunch of pamphlets. And, you know, a whole bunch of different variety of uh, literature and um, and he became probably the richest guy in America in 1810 and uh, he was basically the Bill Gates of his day and um, so now the
0: American... And 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 did he he stay away from politics? Did he he play... uh,
3: I think he did. I think he he, he was just publishing. I'm not really familiar with his... He became a writer. So I have in my collection
1: that's right, so he wrote you're familiar with it the, The History of Printing. So, because he was history of printing in America. That's right. Yeah. So that's the name of the book, the history of printing in America. So Isaiah Thomas, after he made a fortune, and remember, we're now an independent country, and he can now copy all the British books that he wants, mm-hmm. and doesn't have to pay any royalties, and won't pay any royalties. So right. he publishes not, and you heard David say it correctly, 900 books over his career. He publishes the first book written by a Native American that was printed in America. He publishes the first fully-illustrated Bible published in America. It's, uh, as you said, music scores, education books, about math, about, I, I saw one book in one of the exhibits. or Actually, this was online. I was thinking about buying it, but it was too expensive for doctors about how to deliver babies. Mm-hmm. So his printing press and he created and I think listeners of this radio station radio station will really appreciate it, a vertically integrated um, organization that had printing presses in various locations. So I think it was sixteen printing presses. He had his own book binding, he had his own
3: printing company. He had his own shop in Boston where he sold these things and, yeah.
1: and he had bookshops around the colony. Yeah. So he was printing the books, he was selling the books, he was making the paper, he was binding the books, so he became a you know, one of the early entrepreneurs in publishing.
3: Biggest publishing house in America. And uh oh yeah, I just do want to say one more shout out, if you don't mind, it's okay. No problem. Hi, Mom and Dad. I just want to say I love
0: you and I hope you're having fun with this. Hey, it's the first Blink Radio worldwide. I love you. Not bad.
3: <laughs> there you go.
0: Okay. No, the problem with that is now all Ed's ex girlfriends are going to start calling and everything. Oh, no, no. They're <laughs> Katrina, sorry. I just had to say that.
2: That was okay to
0: do. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. This is Community Radio. That's we. Uh, which, all right.
1: We can go on, but I want to make sure we also make the connection. So, this is a Hamilton exhibit. So, why does this Hamilton exhibit have Isaiah Thomas? So, the first answer is we needed to do art in order to do justice to the exhibit, uh, because it's an art gallery. Second reason is because this isn't just any art, this is very intricately researched art where it happened. And, you know, the city where it happened is Boston, because that's where the revolution began. And you know, some of the books you're going to see at this exhibit are the laws that Parliament passes to retaliate against the British. The, the Boston Harbor Act, which shuts down Boston Harbor. The Quartering
2: Act, which puts more British troops in American houses. And so the, the the, Act, these are
0: the uh, coercive acts that you talked yeah. about. And, in fact, uh, quartering of soldiers was one of the complaints
2: in the Declaration of Independence. That's right,
1: and it's now the Third Amendment of the United States Constitution. So the Coercive Acts—there are different ways people can describe them. Some people call them the Intolerable Acts. That's what the American colonists call them. That these acts that Britain passed to retaliate against Boston, we call them intolerable. The British called them Coercive because that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to coerce Massachusetts and send a message to the other 12 colonies. Don't you think about? doing what Boston is trying, and it was just the opposite effect. The other colony, colonies united together to fight and join with Boston, and why did the other colonies, we could debate about this on another evening, but the other colonies started printing the same story and that same first hand report from Lexington and Concord that, that Isaiah Thomas had written as the first war correspondent, and if anyone goes to Washington, D.C., the museum has a big discussion about the importance of Isaiah Thomas. So what's the Hamilton connection? So part of the answer is-
3: Wait, wait, before you go into that, I just want to mention, the, I did. I, I have a, a full-scale print of that first issue uh, by Isaiah Thomas on May 3rd, when he wrote about Lexington and Concord at the, at the uh, exhibit in uh, the Cotilla Gallery next week. No, I mean, it's up until April 15th, and I'm giving my talk next Sunday on uh, on Isaiah Thomas. And, and my paintings, and that'll be at two o'clock p.m. at the Catilla Gallery, and NSU.
0: you. Yeah, repeat the date again.
3: It's uh, November 20th. i I'm sorry. <laughs> on March twenty fourth, Sunday, March twenty fourth, two p.m. at the Catilla Gallery, and uh, and so I'll be giving a talk on my paintings, the development of the paintings, how they came about, and I'll go over details and uh, and answer questions.
1: And a lot of people may not necessarily be able to find the Cortilla Gallery, so we, well, let's describe the building. Cotilla, the building, Cotilla. the Cortilla Gallery, is in the Alfred Sherman Library, which we mentioned earlier is the largest by size library in Florida. It's a beautiful, beautiful facility on the campus of Nova Southeastern University, and if you're coming from the west, you drive past the Dolphin Training Grounds, and uh, I was joking with but David, as we went there to put in some of the exhibits over the weekend, and uh, it's a air-conditioned bubble. So their, ten- their tennis court, their football field is uh-huh. covered with air conditioned So you get to drive past the Dolphin training facility. But I didn't want David taking pictures because he's not a Dolphin fan. But you can't see in anyway because of that because of that covering. But uh, what's the point? The point is that um, it is a ph- phenomenal exhibit, which is two o'clock next Sunday, which is the twenty-fourth at the Cortilla Gallery at the yeah, Alfred Cortilla yeah. Gallery at the Alfred Sherman Library. And uh, to, to close out, we want to talk about how do you connect Isaiah Thomas to Hamilton. And one of the ways to make that connection, and anyone who watched the musical may remember that how does Hamilton get to America? And the answer is there is a hurricane came and devastation rained. I'm not going to do it as much as I...
0: No, nah, come on. You did it perfectly last night.
1: So <laughs> you have a hurricane, which hits Nevis and this part of the Caribbean, and we've got maps. We should also mention in the gallery. Beautiful
3: maps. Yes, yeah, full scale. I mean, not full scale. <laughs> Large scale maps. Large scale
1: maps from the 1770s, and these are maps before America, before the United States was known as the United States. So we've got wonderful maps because we're trying to show Hamilton comes from the Caribbean. He is an immigrant, and that's part of the discussion we had last night about Hamilton's story, which we can do on future evenings. So the way that Alexander Hamilton gets to America is he writes a story about the hurricane. He vividly describes in, in biblical kind of language, because he was young back then, and uh, you know, he was educated and understands. Uh, that's one of the ways that you could speak and people understand. So he's using this very detailed and um, you know passionate language about what he's, the vivid imagery. What you do with your paintings, Alexander Hamilton was doing with words. how all of a sudden, the wind stop, and we know that today—that's the eye of the hurricane, which is another song in the Hamilton musical. So uh, Hamilton writes this story about the devastation. The people are starving. And this. this is uh, you
3: know, what, what age was he? he comes to America. He was, he was about fifteen. He was fifteen when he wrote this. When he wrote this article, when he had the hurricane experience.
1: So he gets a scholarship. Effectively, he comes to New York, and he comes to New York in 1772. That time frame, and this is when the revolution is uh, heating up with protests and with uh, demonstrations, and 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 the foment in Boston. But uh, who is it that publishes that first article that Hamilton writes?
3: Bill Gates? No.
1: The Bill Gates of his day. So Isaiah Thomas. In the Massachusetts Spy, which is the name of Isaiah Thomas's newspaper, publishes Alexander Hamilton's first published essay about that hurricane from that's 1772, right. and that's the beginning of a relationship. Or what Hamilton is writing is being published by Isaiah Thomas.
0: Yeah. Wow. You. Oh, okay. So now, when when is it that Alexander Hamilton? Um, What's the last thing he asked of Isaiah Thomas in terms of publishing something, or you know, pronouncing something, or 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 marketing a law that he was suggesting? What's the last thing that Alexander Hamilton asked of Isaiah Thomas?
1: Manny, that's an excellent question, which we're still researching. The problem is that uh, we're going to reach out to the American Antiquarian Society, their archives are under a protected paywall. So as much as I want to get into those archives, you have to go to Worcester, to the American Antiquarian Society, which was founded by Isaiah Thomas. And we could talk at another time about the American Antiquarian Society is. And David, you have contacts there, so maybe yeah, yeah. we can get into some of those
0: archives. Now, is it did, it did he leave a corporation behind that was later bought and sold, bought and sold, that we recognize today, or no?
3: I'm not quite sure about that. Well, those are good questions. I know so. that there's a Massachusetts finder being published in New Hampshire. Now, but I don't know if it's if it's the continuation of his Massachusetts spy. I, I was told by them it was, but why is it New Hampshire? You
0: know? <laughs> I'm just wondering. All right, well, that uh, that pretty much ends the show because we're at eight o'clock.
3: Well, thank you, thank you so
0: much. And uh, uh, I, I I really would like uh, to uh, to go back to the exhibit before April the fifteenth. Because being a, a, a handsome 54 single guy, I can't think of a better way that's... So
2: Sunday I, I day hope day. you can come to my talk.
0: Well, you know, um, if I go to your talk, um, you know, you're going to be distracted by my date and you're not going to be able to talk. Because, you know, my dates are so beautiful and lovely that, you know...
2: He rents them just for the occasion.
0: <laughs> I rent the Patriot. No, I, I have a... I have a, a, a considerable amount of girlfriends that are are really slow because of this radio station are slowly becoming patriotic instead of just, you know, popular. And uh, I mean, your exhibits, um, all of the, everything I saw there, I know that I had to, uh, I had to take more time because uh, two hours wasn't enough because uh, an hour was consumed by you all speaking. So um, when the second hour came around I got to meet Adam's father. Got to meet your son. Your son is really sharp.
2: We're gonna have him call into the show.
0: Yeah. So that's okay. We're gonna need an adult approval to have the after, minor speak.
2: After I take him to the gun range.
0: And your dad was uh um he said that uh, he he loves our show so much, um, he he basically is uh a number one fan. Maybe I don't know. I thought I, I thought Adam was, but he, he says that perhaps he loves us more than he loves you. Is that true? No, that's impossible. right? Is a
1: hardcore conservative. There's no doubt about it.
0: So- oh, I didn't say anything about conservative. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think he didn't like Ed too much. I don't know. Ed had this demeanor. But I think he just liked me more.
1: Yeah. So I want to turn the tables on the two of you real quickly with two questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to point out that one of the newspapers we have, so it's not just books, it's not just maps. We've got Continental currency, and we also have newspapers. And one of the newspapers is one of the Massachusetts spies from 1789. So the first question I'm going to ask you is why is 1789? Why do we have a Massachusetts spy from 1789? And that one is for Manny or for Ed. What? Uh, Hamilton was uh, uh,
2: appointed as Secretary of the Treasury.
1: So 1789 is when, that's right, when the first Congress is meeting and when the government is taking shape. So that's an important year in the history of America. We also have a New York Evening Post from 1804, and these are all original newspapers, and people can read them for themselves. So why do we have an 1804 New York Evening Post in a Hamilton exhibit?
2: Hamilton had just been killed.
1: It's the New York Evening Post. Why do we have a New York Evening Post? He
2: founded it. He founded it.
1: Yeah.
2: And he was killed in 1804, that's probably his obituary.
1: We've got, It's not from the day he was killed, but it's from the year that he was killed, 1804, so people can come out and spend some time studying these maps. And I've been telling people I could stand in front of some of these maps for, uh, for probably too much time that I don't have, going into trying to understand. It's very interesting to look at some of these primary sources. And uh, here's my last question for each of you, which is, of all the exhibits that you saw, from the British Acts of Parliament, and then we also have laws that continued through the Civil War. So these are laws that were passed when they were, when they were put in book form. So of all the laws, there are over 100 years worth of laws and acts of Parliament, acts of Congress, including the Emancipation Proclamation and these newspapers and Hamilton's Grotius book. I'm curious from each of you, which, and it's maybe hard to choose, but which of the things you looked at did you find most interesting?
0: For me, it was the Louisiana Purchase. The yeah. big document.
2: Yeah, I like the uh, his law books. The first American law book that was interesting.
0: There you go, well, gentlemen,
1: we are getting ready for dinner. It is always a great honor and privilege to privilege to speak to you both, and, and David, thank you for coming down. And thank you. Next Sunday, what time and where?
3: Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, Monday at seven o'clock. I'm sorry, Sunday. No,
2: Sunday, a, two p.m. at the Nova Southeast yeah, right. University, <laughs> uh, Alvin
0: Sherman Library. I'm
3: speaking on Monday, I'm sorry, Sunday, two p.m. at the. I,
0: I don't know. Uh, how about you just bring an easel and start painting?
2: That's a good idea. All right,
0: I'll do that. <laughs> uh, you know, start painting.
2: Do, do caricatures of the uh, people visiting.
0: <laughs> no, I would paint. I would paint Ed and make him look like. Uh, try to make him look like uh, Alexander Hamilton. Oh. <laughs> make it out there. You bet. We're, I, I can't promise that. That one's going to be a tough one for me on a Sunday because okay. um, I really don't know why, but I'm afraid to say I'm going to go and then I don't show up. So, you know, we're concrete conservatives here. We have to be frank and honest, but I definitely I'm going to be going to that exhibit one more time before April the 15th.
1: you good. And Manny, before we sign off, the prospect that you may be showing up is a way of attracting listeners
0: to be there. So you haven't definitively said no. So to all the listeners who want to lot of Oh, yeah, I'm creating a, a cameo moment. Okay.
1: There's a possibility that you may be there.
0: Yeah, well, I, as I told you, I did play Benjamin Franklin once in a school play, and I was damn good at it.
2: Wow. And, and Manny will give his autographs while he's there. Yeah, that's
1: good. There you go. Everyone have a good night, and we're signing off. Thank good you night. very much. Thank
2: you.
0: Thank all you right. very much. So you're listening to the... Statues and Stories, every single Monday from 7 to 8 after the Concrete Conservative. Stay tuned for the Chris Hand Show all the way to midnight. Chris Hand
2: Hall, Liberty First University,
0: right? Yeah, uh, Liberty First University. And she will be playing probably for the rest of the night because Monday night is USA night. We only talk about making America great
2: again. And the rule of law
0: and the rule of law, and, of course, justice. Not equality and fairness, but justice. So take care, my friends. This is Mac on the Rock. Thank you, Ed Vidal. I know you did your best, um, even though you refused to breathe out your mouth, and everybody heard your nose all day, all night. See you. WSQF. Key Biscayne, Miami Beach, and Miami. Blink Radio.
3: This at chrisannhall.com, K-R-I-S-A-N-N-E-H-A-L-L.com, where we are always and consistently liberty over security, principle over party, and truth over you.